Good afternoon. So I just drove up at the same time as Aaron, and um, I got out of my car, and I'm um, sitting there getting my stuff, and I'm like, I wonder why Aaron is sitting there with a car on. So then I start walking away from my car, and it makes this loud beeping noise, and Aaron gets out of the car, and she goes, you need to turn off your car. <laughs> the point being that none of us are super mindful all of the time, and that... Um, we can uh, learn to kind of take that in stride and uh, know that that's the way life is. I don't have to tell you that none of us are mindful all the time. You've figured that out by now, I'm sure. The second full day of practice, and um, you might be having some concerns about uh, how things are going and and, and what in the world uh, made you think this might be a good idea. I know for some of you that's not true. Some of you, you know, going along fine, but but it's not uncommon that there are... um, We see the size of the beast is what I call it sometimes. We, we, We face the truth of the human heart and mind and how complicated they are. And, uh, you know, we thought by now that probably we should relatively free of thoughts and, um, you know, most things should not bother us anymore, and uh, no strong emotions, just a little bit of bliss, maybe. And um, and then we're like, wait a moment, this isn't happening. Somebody once said to Reggie Ray, a Tibetan teacher, um, they suggested to him that most of the world thinks that meditation means cultivating a peaceful state of mind, and he half-jokingly responded, well, those are people who haven't meditated, obviously. <laughs> so fortunately, the Buddha left us a map of um, some way to navigate this terrain, this complicated, beautiful, wild, crazy terrain of being human. And I thought I'd give us a little bit of the sense of the map so that you can, um, for those of you who are more linear, can kind of understand what we keep pointing to and have a a kind of a framework to hold it. So when the Buddha talked about the spiritual path or the meditative life, the spiritual life, he talked of it in context of what's known as the Noble Eightfold Path. So this is, um, you could say, eight steps in the spiritual life. it's not exactly a linear path. It's more like the Noble Eightfold Circle because we, we go around on all of these different parts of the spiritual life and they, they affect each other um, and work all together, you could say. So the first, uh, there, it's divided into three parts. Um, the Buddha, Buddha Buddhist teachings, um, I don't know if the Buddha was help or how they were preserved, but lots of lists and this and that. And um, for those of us who like some organization, this can really work well. So the Noble Eightfold Path or the Noble Eightfold Circle has three parts. The first part is the wisdom part, and it has two, part, two, two sections. Um, wise view or wise understanding and wise intention. So wise view means understanding what leads to suffering and understanding what leads to 
to peace, to the deepest happiness or freedom. That's basically, and all the different um, pieces that help us understand that. Wise intention, you could say, is the movements of mind or the intentions of mind that support that, that lead to happiness. And there's three basic ones. The first is renunciation or simplicity. And you've heard us kind of keep pointing to that. Meditation is meant to make us more and more simple. Not more complicated, but more and more simple. The stripping away that Aaron um, mentioned, uh, letting go, stripping away. So renunciation. And then the other two are uh, metta and compassion. So basically developing these heart qualities of friendliness and um, care and kindness. So you see that last night we worked very directly with with the skillful intention of metta by doing a practice that consciously develops that. The next section of the Eightfold Path is um, ethics. And there are three parts. Wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. So all three of these are about living our our deepest values, living from the places of of truth and non-delusion and um, care. And we're going to hear more about that towards the end of the retreat. We talked about it, uh, J-Mo talked about it a little bit the first night with the precepts. The precepts are like, you could say, the most basic basis of... um, this whole section on on ethics. And it really points to the fact that um, if we want to be happy, that meditation isn't enough, that we need to be able to manifest it in our lives. We need to be able to take care with our actions, that they don't spread suffering, that they spread kindness, both for ourselves and for others. The third section of the uh, Noble Eightfold Circle is around about meditation. And it has three parts. Um, Wise uh, mindfulness, wise effort, and wise concentration. So we've been talking a fair amount about wise concentration and wise mindfulness. Concentration, that that collectedness of heart and mind. I don't always like the word concentration because, for example, when I say that word, you might feel this kind of, (laughs) it it can, for some of us, bring up kind of almost reflexive trying to hold something together. I prefer the word um, non-distractedness or collectedness. It has, for me, just a little bit of a more easeful feel to it. So it's every time that we wake up out of a thought story and we come back to some sense experience here, we're developing this skill and this uh, quality of non-distractedness. And every time counts. That's the great thing. So the more times you come back, celebrate, the better. We often think if we're coming back a lot, over and over again that our practice is somehow not so great. But actually, the more times you're coming back, it, it means you're present more. 
I'll, I'll just give you break this down a little bit. So let's say we have a 45-minute sit, and your average thought, you're lost 10 minutes. You're going to come back four times, right? Four and a half times, four or five times. Let's say that over time your thoughts get a little shorter before you wake up. Maybe let's say three minutes. Instead of 10 minutes lost in a thought, you're lost three minutes and you wake up. You're going to come back 15 times in, in a 45-minute sit. That's better. That's better practice. You know, you're more awake. You're more here. So, so don't become discouraged if you wake up a lot from thought and come back. That's actually a really good sign. You're waking up. You're developing this non-distractedness. And then mindfulness. So once you get here, the non-distractedness, getting here, mindfulness is knowing what's happening when you're here, living it. So with um, concentration, we bring our attention, for example, to the breath over and over again. Mindfulness feels the breath, so feels the changing sensations of breathing. Or we bring our attention to the body, mindfulness feels the sensation, feels the sensations of the hands, perhaps the tingling or the warmth or the pressure. So I sometimes say concentration gets us to the park and mindfulness smells the roses. (laughs) And they work together, we need them together. So the last um, of the of this section on mind um, on meditation is about wise effort. So that's what I want to talk a little bit more about today. There's a number of ways of talking about uh, wise effort, but I'm going to start with the way of talking about a kind of balanced effort in our practice. And we've already talked about this a little bit. It's an it's a, um, ongoing question, whether you're a beginner or whether you've been doing this practice for 20, 30, 40 years. The question of effort is, um, you could say, always alive. Because circumstances change. And so you could say that wise effort is responsive to uh, the needs of the moment or the um, conditions of the moment. There's a sutra about wise effort. It's one of my favorite sutras, and I'm going to read it to you. It's from the Samyutta Nikaya. So a, a, a deva, a deva in Buddhism, a deva is kind of like an angel. It's a being that lives in the heaven, heaven realms. And they, um, they like dharma sometimes. They're interested. <laughs> Not quite as much as humans sometimes because it's kind of pleasant in the heaven realms and they're busy enjoying themselves. Um, but occasionally they will get interested. So a deva says to the Buddha, Tell me, dear sir, how you crossed over the flood. Crossed over the flood means um, freed the heart and mind, kind of the flood of, of this human life and freed the heart and mind. So tell me, dear sir, how you crossed over the flood, the Buddha. I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. The deva, not quite satisfied. 
But how did you cross over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place? The Buddha. When I pushed forward, I was whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. And so I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. Yes, you can see the humor here. <laughs> the deva, however, seemed uh, satisfied with that answer. He says, or she says, or they say, At long last I see an honorable one, totally unbound, who, without pushing forward, without staying in place, has crossed over the entanglements of the world. So the, the Buddha, in a, in a move that's um, both uh, delightful and intriguing, doesn't tell us exactly what he did. <laughs> um, but he does give us some clues. He tells us what he avoided doing. So he avoided pushing forward and he avoided staying in place. He found that when he pushed forward, he got swept around. And when he stayed in place, he sank. And so you could say that skillful effort is somewhere between these two. And that we discover skillful effort when we see that we've fallen in one of those two and we adjust. So I'm going to talk about these two, how they might look and how we might um, adjust them. So staying in one place, (laughs) that would mean um, not really committing our hearts to our practice. I love what Aaron said yesterday about um, being, or maybe it was this morning, about being with our practice wholeheartedly, right? So, so staying in one place might, um, well, first of all, you guys have overcome a huge staying in one place thing because you came here like that. That was a lot of effort to, to get here. Um, but even on retreat, just looking at, um, you know, perhaps at times when we, 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 we get a little too casual, you could say, like um, not really putting our hearts into it. We want to stretch some on retreat, um, but not too much. <laughs> and then we're into pushing forward. But we want to uh, stretch some. It's like if you do yoga. If you don't stretch some, you don't develop, Right? You stretch too much, and you hurt yourself. And so on retreat, it's, it's this art of, of stretching a little bit. I was talking in one group about, it's like having your foot lightly on the gas. You don't want to, like, floor it. <laughs> if you floor it, it's not so good for the engine, right? But, but lightly on the gas, just exploring kind of our edges of, of what... Um, of what we're, we're willing to do or what the heart and mind is willing to do. This morning in one of the groups we were talking about one way that, that we can stretch a little bit is bringing our practice into, the, into the, the whole day. And again, Aaron pointed towards this, um, having this intention to be mindful, um, basically from the moment you wake up till the moment you go to sleep. And it doesn't mean you're going to be mindful all the time. Obviously, there will be times of more mindfulness, times of less. But, but having the intention that your whole day is, is your practice. However, <laughs> the first time this was suggested to me, I looked at my teacher and I said, you've got to be kidding. 
<laughs> my mind was like, I'm not doing that. And so I negotiated. <laughs> Sometimes you have to negotiate with your own system. It's like, huh, what would you be willing to do? And it might be like, well, I'm going to bring mindfulness to my meals. That, that feels like some place that I can stretch a little bit. And, and while I'm eating, feel the lifting and the chewing and the tasting and the swallowing and just noticing what's it like to really connect with that experience, maybe feel, feeling the, the desire for more. This um, word, effort, sometimes translated as, uh, virya, sometimes translated as courage. Isn't that interesting? Effort associated with courage. Again, the wholeheartedness, right? Sometimes translated as diligence or perseverance. One meditation teacher, Dear Vamsa, says we should be like hens sitting on their eggs. Steady, patient, nothing might seem to be happening, but we keep with it. Our cushions are our nests, right? <laughs> There's a story of the famous celloist uh, Pablo Casals. This comes from one of Joseph Goldstein's books. It says, Pablo Casals, the world-renowned celloist, still practiced three hours a day when he was 93. When asked why he still practiced at that age, he said, I'm beginning to see some improvement. <laughs> ah, nice, nice. <laughs> um. So perseverance, perseverance could be another translation of this um, word virya or effort. I mean, you're still here. You've persevered. So you're, you know, you're doing it. And then how do we kind of persevere through a day? Um, My husband and I like to go hiking sometimes, and we have two different ways of hiking. So my way is I like to kind of plod. I just keep steady, like going up the mountain. I find a, a pace that I can just maintain, and I go and go. He likes to kind of charge up and then stop and rest. So for meditation practice, my way's better. <laughs> Getting up a mountain, you can do either way. But for, my, my, for meditation practice, we want kind of just a steady, keeping with it, perseverance. It's better than kind of uh, uh, kind of going all out in a certain kind of way and then like crashing. So other ways we can um, think about uh, making some effort if we're if if we're kind of towards the. Uh, the staying in one place uh, edge of things. Um, This is for those who would like to try something kind of fun. Um, When we start our meditation practice, making a vow to not voluntarily think about something. So what I mean by voluntarily, you know, you're going along, you're thinking about something, then you wake up, right? And there's this decision point when you wake up and you know you're thinking. 
And um, sometimes it's like, well, I kind of would just maybe like to think about that, right? And so you, you go back and you think about it some more. Um, what's it like to make a commitment to um, not doing that, to letting it go? You can experiment with it. It can add power to the concentration, because voluntarily thinking about something scatters the attention. Now, please understand me correctly. I'm not saying you're taking a vow not to think. That's not in your control. Um, But to choose to come back to sense-based reality, you could say, when you find a thought, when you wake up from a thought pattern. You could try it for a sitting. You could try it for a day. My first three-month retreat, I tried it for the three months. It was very helpful. It made everything so much simpler. I chose once to think voluntarily. <laughs> but otherwise I kept the commitment. It, was, it just made it all easy. Now, if, that, if you try that and it makes you tight, don't do it. You know, so th- that's the thing with effort. We're, we're trying different things, and if it makes us too tight, we lighten up. If it makes us too loose, we put a little more heart into it in a certain kind of way. Staying off our, our, our devices, that's another pl- way of making effort, right? Leaving them off or turning them into the, to the office or... Um, And, and, and we, it really takes um, seeing what is most helpful for us. And that's going to be different for everybody. Early in my practice, for a number of years, what was most helpful for me was to absolutely follow the schedule. Just do it. That really um, made things simple. At a certain point in my meditation practice, that was absolutely not helpful. It was for balance in my system. I actually needed to sit quite a bit less. So, so this is something we can check out with our teachers, refine, see, um, see what feels right for this system now. So, the other um, side which most of us, many of us, go towards the other side of um, pushing forward and getting whirled about. So when the Buddha said, when I pushed forward, I was whirled about, what he's saying is that when we try too hard, you could say when we push our systems past what they're able or willing to do, or when we get tight in how we meditate, then actually the agitation increases. I get whirled about. And so we explore what's that other side of, of trying too hard. How does that look? Often, one way or one way that we try too hard is we have this belief that somehow we should be able to control our experience that we should be able to make 
the attention stay on the anchor, for example, that we should be able to clear our mind of thoughts, that we should be peaceful all day long, and that if we aren't, it's our fault. So if the mind is busy, it's our fault. If we're sleepy, it's our fault. So there's this erroneous um, understanding that we should be able to make things be a certain way. And kind of related to it, we should look out for the word should or shouldn't in your practice. That's like a, almost a, clear, a real sure sign that you're headed towards um, unskillful effort. Um, there's this belief that we have, most of us, and sometimes it's very loud and sometimes it's subtle, but the belief that if we just find the right conditions and make things be a certain way, we will be happy. And Aaron pointed to this yesterday with a story about, yeah, just solve all your problems and you're going to be happy, right? And we laughed because it's, it's not possible. But yet, it's like this, I wonder if it has some evolutionary advantage or something because it's this deep conditioning that like I, if I, I can just get it right. Maybe it's cultural. Hmm. Anyway, many of us have this deep conditioning like, okay, there's some way to get it perfect that I haven't figured out yet and that when I figure it out, I'm going to be happy. And so there's this tension, right? Sometimes it's like this leaning forward. The next moment, something in the future will do it. I, I, almost, I often can feel it like it's just this little kind of up and forward energy. And then when I feel that, sometimes back and down, right here, right now. There's a mantra that I came across lately. Here, now, this. It's like, okay, here, now, this. It's like an antidote to unskillful effort. And, and, it, and it's calling us, right, to, to return to the truth of the moment, to whatever it is. And it's pointing to that as the place that we can experience freedom. So when we get into this territory of unskillful effort, we actually get, we start, we we need wise view to help us. Wise view, this understanding of what leads to suffering and what leads to peace. So the teachings are that what leads to suffering is, is, is wanting, it's craving, it's thirst for something different. It's control. There's all kinds of different words we can use. And that um, what leads to freedom is letting go of that. Letting go of of this idea that somehow we're going to find it perfect in the future and resting here now. 
And when it, and when we say that the cause of suffering is wanting and greed, greed and craving, um, it's not to deny that certain life circumstances are really challenging and and affect us, right? Trauma or oppression or illness or chronic pain or poverty or many different circumstances, of course, that has an, um, a profound impact on, on our lives. And it also doesn't mean that we don't try to make our lives as um, healthy and as um, strong as possible, that we don't try to, you know, if there's illness, we try to cure it. If there's oppression, we try to end the circumstances causing it. We, you know, if there's injustice, we, we, um, we work with that. So uh, it doesn't mean that we don't do anything. But at the end of the day, we have this heart, body, and mind, right? And how are we going to live with this heart, body, mind in a way that feels free? That we don't feel imprisoned by our own conditioning. That's what we're exploring together. So we're really seeing how we um, we struggle with life. That's that's this uh, big part of of practice and and um, unwise effort of, of, often has this flavor of struggling with life. And at first, it, our struggles might be really loud, right? So let's say there's a, a knee pain. I've worked with knee pain in the past. Now I have to protect my knee because of, of surgery, right? But knee pain. So at first, knee pain, I hate it, right? We suggest that we move towards it. We move towards it. And it's like, no, I hate this. I want it to go away. And, and this struggle with life might be quite loud, you could say. Or perhaps um, there was, we have memories of something that we lost. We want it. We want it back. And when we have the memories, the longing is, 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 is deep and um, convincing and painful, right? And then over years, perhaps at times, sometimes it'll still be loud, but sometimes as we start, we, we actually become sensitized to a more and more subtle ways that we struggle with life. So often for me, like, I'll know that I'm struggling with life because I'll feel this um, hardening right here in my heart. It'll be just this hardening. It'll be like, no. <laughs> it's not like no. Sometimes it's just as quiet, like no. <laughs> and um, you know, sometimes we get a mix. But but over time, it's like we really get to start to feel the subtler and subtler levels that we turn away from life, that we struggle with life, and we start to um, increase the capacity to say yes. Yes, this, here, now, this.
one of my favorite quotes, see if you guys like it, from Adyashanti. The role of spiritual practice is basically to exhaust the seeker. (laughs) If the practice does what it's supposed to do, it exhausts our energy for seeking and then reality has a chance to present itself. (laughs) Are you getting exhausted? (laughs) In some ways, this is a whole path. We try and we try and we try. We try to get conditions the way we want it. We try to have, we had that great sitting this morning, we try to make it happen in the afternoon. Somebody said there's nothing like a good sitting to ruin your day. (laughs) Yeah, we try and, and we try and we get disappointed. We talked in one group this morning about being disappointed mindfully. That um, as a, hmm, one meditation master said, disappointment is a good sign of basic intelligence. <laughs> and mindful disappointment is, is wisdom. Because what, it, what it's teaching us is that um, if we're looking for conditions for our happiness... Uh, it's not going to work. It might work for a little while, but it's not a good long-term strategy. And it has this tension, right? This tension of seeking, 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 busy, 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 some other time, some other place, right? Where's the rest that we talked about the first night? Disappointment helps us learn that that seeking, seeking, seeking isn't going to do it. So we learn how to come back to what is here, what's now, what's this. So part of of working with skillful effort especially this this trying too hard, we have to come to terms somehow with the inner critic. Because the inner critic, um, I'm talking about it as a thing, but it's, it's a, you could say it's a conditioned pattern of, of thinking and feeling. Um, but this voice that, that we may have that um, tells us we're not trying hard enough and that we need to um, up our game a little bit. And and it's um, yeah, it gives us like this supposedly really helpful advice, like get it together. <laughs> it's your fault. You you messed up there. <laughs> you should have been able to do better. Um, what's wrong with you? <laughs> there there's so many versions, right? Some are really harsh. Um, but that voice that 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 kind of kind of pushes us to like move towards that control and move towards using our will in this kind of um, harsh way. And I think it's it's conditioning that many of us have. I know I've worked with it for years. Um, and in my early practice, it was quite strong, quite... Um, 
a harsh voice. And over years, I learned how to kind of work with it. So now sometimes it'll come up. Not so much anymore is actually really the truth after a number of years. Um, But sometimes if it does come up, it's like I don't take it too seriously anymore. We learn not to take it too seriously. At first, it's very compelling. I worked a number of years um, teaching the teen retreat here. I I worked 18 years on the teen retreat, a very lovely retreat. And um, for many years I was a lead teacher, and we had this whole team of of volunteers. So every year there's like 20 volunteers that support the 60, 70 teens that come here. And um, there was one young man, I think he was in his early 30s at that time, and uh, he came a number of years and... He was um, this kind of big, big white guy, had a lot of tattoos, and um, it could, if you had a certain frame of mind, be easy to kind of put him in a certain category. And one day he really surprised me. He said, um, uh, Rebecca, he said, you know how sometimes you, um, you're on a long retreat and you, and you see all the notes on the board and you really want a note? Have the, have, the, has, have you had that experience, right? It's like, oh, it, does anybody care about me? <laughs> you know, And especially he's talking like about these three-month retreats, right? Where like he says, well, you know what I used to do? I used to write notes to myself and put them up there. <laughs> and, and then I said, well, what did the notes say? And he said, one note said, You're trying hard enough. So if that note would help you, you can write that note to yourself. (laughs) Put it on the board if you want to. (laughs) You're trying hard enough. It was so sweet. He's now a meditation teacher of his own. (laughs) He said I could use that story. (laughs) Sometimes... um, You know, the Vipassana technique for working with the inner critic would be noting it as a thought, right? Noticing how the feeling is and feeling it. But sometimes it takes more than that with this this, this really um, compelling um, conditioned pattern. So sometimes I would like imagine it as something like an image to kind of start separating myself from it and, and, and having it be something that I could relate to rather than something that felt all-consuming when it would take me over. Um, So sometimes I'd imagine it like this kind of cute little monster. And I would say, thanks so much for sharing. You're working so hard. Why don't you go have a cup of tea, sit in the corner, and like relax for a while, you know? You're really working too hard. <laughs> you know, basically, in the end, we try to learn how to have some love when we relate to this kind of patterning. Um, it's got to come down to love, folks. Getting rid of it isn't going to work. So, we, but first, we have to have have some space, right? Like, huh? How do we relate to that energy? We we can learn a kind of. Um, relationship that's mutually respectful. 
might take a few years. My teacher with these kind of deep patterns, she calls them karmic knots. And she says they take um, somewhere between 10 years and a lifetime to work out. So, spacious, spacious view. Another big support for um, softening effort when, when we find that we, that we have that kind of striving effort or the strong inner voice or this pushing kind of energy is um, metta, loving-kindness. In, metta, in Burma, metta is known as a, a, a protection, a guardian meditation. And the beautiful thing about metta is it makes our hearts, you could say, both strong and gentle at the same time. It's a beautiful combination. And what we learn is, is um, through the metta is how to infuse the mindfulness with kindness. And this allows us to soften into life as it is. So in my early practice, I, I, one of my strengths, you could say, was willpower and <laughs> determination. I had a lot of it. Um, but at a certain point, it, it, was, it was too harsh. It wasn't helpful. It was a kind of harsh, fix, fix me up kind of energy, like you need to be fixed, there's something wrong with you, Arr, that kind of energy. And at a certain point in my practice, also, I was suffering a lot, I... I, I I came in with my fair, my fair share of suffering. And um, and at one point I was like, after I think it was about eight years, I was like so aware that I was suffering. I could really see this. And I felt stuck. I felt like I couldn't, it wasn't really moving at all. So I went to my um, my teacher and I explained the situation. And he said, um, you should do a metta retreat. Well, as I explained last night, I hated metta practice. And um, so when he told me to do a metta retreat, I was like, oh, anything but that, please, you know, no. Um, But I was suffering a lot, so I was willing to try what he suggested. And um, came here and did an eight-week metta retreat. And um, it was absolutely the best, the best thing uh, for my heart. And for my practice, it taught me how to soften or begin to soften. I'm still learning (laughs) to begin to soften. But it also gave me strength, the strength of a heart that can hold so much. And then I went deeper into suffering. But that was the right way to go. That was the right direction. That was the direction that that moved things. It allowed me to feel like I was continuing to grow and to understand peace. So we cultivate with metta last night, and and we'll continue cultivating metta as a, a kind of relational practice with people. But we also learn how to cultivate metta with our own experience. And, there, and metta allows the heart to widen and to um, get large enough 
to hold this vast, vast um, display of life right in in us as a human being. All the joys, all the beauties of the world and the sorrow and the pain and the grief. It gives us a kind of flexible strength. When when something is is hard, it's brittle. When something is soft, it's stronger because it can bend and be flexible and meet the world as it is, this changing world. So you could say, I, I really feel that this wisdom practice of, of um, acceptance with what arises, we've talked about that a lot, learning how to meet what arises in our practice. That's a wisdom practice. And then the metta practice is learning how to love it. I feel like these two come together. And then we have this wise heart and this caring heart that knows how to respond to this world. So as we learn um, this, uh, you could say, wise effort, that this effort that's not... Um, staying in one place, but this effort that's also not pushing forward, we learn this um, territory in between, we start to understand the, the joy of simple presence, of being, of the open heart. And these, they're like moments of grace. We can't, um, we can't manufacture them. We can't make them come up, but we start to have tastes. Maybe it's only a few moments, but a taste of a heart at peace, undefended, unobstructed, open to life as it is. I can remember what I what I often feel like is was my first taste of this. It was a, a retreat here, and I was washing dishes. I was washing pots, actually. And it was, uh, I think it was like in December. I was standing at the window washing pots, and um, it had snowed. It was kind of beautiful outside. And I had this moment of absolutely no wish to be anywhere else. And it felt like the first time in my life I'd had that experience. That there'd always been some subtle something in the past that there was somewhere else that was going to do it. But just this moment of, of, of grace, of absolutely no wish to be anywhere else. And I cried. I was so happy. I cried. So this is a kind of peace and happiness that we, we all have the potential right, for. And yet you can't make it happen. That's what kind of messes with us. <laughs> That's the, the paradox of effort, <laughs> that trying to make something happen won't work in meditation. Yes, we put in the, our time. We clock in. <laughs> we come to the hall. We do the walking meditation. We do the technique. And then we let it unfold. There's a kind of surrender, you could say. 
a surrender to, to life and to life unfolding. There's a story, one of the teenagers, um, do I have time? I think I have time. Okay, I think I have time. There's a story that one of the teenagers wrote um, after a, a teen retreat called The Power of Presence, and he said I could share it. This was years ago, but I'm sure he's still fine. <laughs> the first time I was on retreat at IMS, I hadn't yet been born. I was curled up inside my mother's womb. And then he talks about going to the teen retreats. I cannot fully express the impact these events have had on my life. I can, however, attempt to describe one particularly meaningful moment. Last summer, during a sit toward the end of the teen course, I was going about my normal routine, settling the mind, focusing on the breath, and letting ambient sounds come and go. Suddenly, I experienced a first in my meditation practice. I was uncontrollably happy. Feelings of total relaxation, of fullness, of being in the right place and doing the right thing were produced. Experiencing this happiness was extremely powerful. It wasn't about beating a video game or buying a new pair of shoes, but was pure joy in its simplest form, joy about nothing at all. Added to that was the awesome presence of 60 other teenagers meditating all around me. I was radiating positive energy, I was at the pinnacle of my spiritual mind-altering high. Breathe in, breathe out. And a couple minutes later, I was back to the struggle of staying in the present. While this deep happiness only lasted a short time, it was gratifying to know how rewarding it is. It has given me the curiosity to become mindful on a day-to-day basis, whether it's taking a deep breath every so often to remind myself of now or noticing subtle scenes of beauty while walking down a sidewalk. In the end, you could say that meditation both takes um, more and less effort than we thought, right? Because you know how, how much effort it takes to get through a day here. A lot. It takes a lot of commitment and perseverance, right? So that way it's kind of more than you probably thought. If this was your first retreat, you probably didn't think it was going to be that much effort, right? So it takes more than you thought. And it takes less than you thought, or you think, because it takes, um, it's almost a giving up of effort on the other side there, the effort to control, to manipulate, to make things perfect, to avoid, to all of that, right? All the busyness of the mind and the, and the striving. So it takes less effort than that. And there's this place of, of this middle place of um, this here, no, here, now, this. So I do have time for two more little uh, bits here. The first time is a story that I think points to skillful effort. 
called Making Firewood. In the 60s and 70s, the Zen monk Dei Chun lived in rural Tennessee, where he attracted a small but devoted group of students associated with a nearby university. When Dei Chun first came to Tennessee, there was a huge dead oak in the yard beside his cabin. One of his neighbors happened by and said, you'd better cut that thing down or one of these days it's going to fall on your roof. Oh, thank you, said Dei Chun. The next time he went into town, he brought a hatchet at a thrift store. He promptly set to work on the tree's enormous trunk, chopping away for some time every morning and showing no signs of discouragement at his minimal progress. Neighbors, seeing him work day after day, showed up with chainsaws offering to cut it down for him. Thank you, no, said Dei Chun. I do it my way. This went on for months, with such regularity that if his neighbors didn't hear the steady chop, chop, chop of Dei Chun on his tree on any given morning, they'd come over to make sure he was all right. On the day the tree finally fell, with a crash that shook all the houses on his street, one of Dei Chun's friends asked him, So what will you do now? Make firewood, answered Dei Chun. He later said this was the way he'd taught his students meditation. You just chop away a little bit every day, and one day an enormous tree falls. It's a story of a monk, and I'd like to end with a story from a nun. There's... um, one of the kind of, what's the word I want? The early uh, writings uh, of the Buddhist teachings includes a book that's called Verses of the Nuns. And it's the enlightenment stories or the enlightenment poems of, of the early nuns from the time of the Buddha. So there's this tradition when you got enlightened that you would uh, write a poem. And these poems are, are quite fascinating. Um, Many of them include kind of laments about the challenges of of life. Uh, One of them, there's one, Patachara, she's like, I've been meditating for years. Like, why haven't I seen any progress? (laughs) There's another one, I can't remember the nun's um, name, but she's like, wow, finally got away from my crooked husband and all the pots and pans. (laughs) (laughs) And... um, There's a number of them with stories attached of just most of them a huge amount of suffering, just the loss of children, um, the abuse of of in-laws, a number were um, uh, prostitutes and and the challenges of of that work. And so uh, just really lots of trauma. And um, I tell you that because it's like they weren't so so different from us. They, they, They also struggled a lot. And uh, their enlightenment poems are beautiful. I'd like to read one um, from a new translation that I think is coming out pretty soon. And it's kind of a little bit more modern translation of the poems. It's, uh, I've enjoyed it quite a bit. This is called Another Sama. So her name is Sama, the nun's name. After 25 years on the path, I'd experienced almost everything except peace. When I was young, my mother told me I would find true happiness only in marriage. Remembering her words all those years later, something in me began to tremble. 
I gave myself to the trembling, and it showed me all the pain this little heart had ever known. And how countless lives of searching had brought me at last to the present moment, which I happily married. Can you imagine? We've been living together ever since without a single argument. Sit for a The Deva, at long last I see an honorable one totally unbound, who without pushing forward, without staying in place, has crossed over the entanglements of the world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.